Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, the one with the enlarged heart who speaks the language of dance and folly, Sorba the Greek. fictitious good news, we've been told by the great gods of podcasting that if we can manage to get 19 more subscribers, those very same gods will will turn on the great faucet that is advertising dollars, where in exchange for a tiny bit of our dignity, we can receive upwards of $37 per episode, hawking uh, mattresses in a box or really soft underwear at our code wisdom of at checkout hashtag first 50 meals shipped free. Now I might really want this, like this would be like big time success, but I also kind of, you know, I kind of fear success. So I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, if it'll push us over the top or it'll just bleed subscribers, but I'm going to try some free association here in this episode. So if I think about uh, Zorba, Zorba the Greek, uh, I think about the Greek, I think about The Wire, a TV show that had a character, a character that was looming behind it all, and he was simply called the Greek, and he wasn't even Greek. Strangely, I think of I think of pizza, pizza from Greek restaurants. I really think it's the best pizza. It's the most generous. It's heaping. It's unpretentious. It just feels life affirming, despite taking years off of your life. I think of uh, uh, the disgraced uh, sportscaster, Jimmy the Greek, that I'm sure nobody who's young knows and nobody outside of North America knows. I won't get into the awful, hateful comments that got him fired, but we can safely say that he was at the very least out of step with his time. In one way or another, all these crazy things I've just brought up, if you're charitable they have some sort of connection to the titular character from today's focus, Zorba the Greek. Hmm, to, to keep our dignity or to go with the uh, soft underwear advertising? That is our own Shakespearean question today, isn't it? Anyway, so, so first and as usual, a brief summary. So Zorba the Greek is a novel written by the, the Cretan author, Nikos Kazantzakis and it was first published in 1946. The story is about a young English writer who sets out to Crete to claim a small inheritance. 
But when he arrives, he meets Alexis Zorba, an older man with a, with a passion for life. Zorba is a simple but deep man who lives every moment fully and without shame. As their friendship develops, the young writer is gradually transformed. Zorba the Greek was adapted into the successful 1964 film of the same name, which starred Anthony Quinn as Zorba. Oh, and um, Greek pizza does feel life-affirming, doesn't it? It, it, It's such a great time to be alive. For example, you know, instead of having face-to-face actual contact with a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, I can do therapy through an app on my phone, which I was assured was just as good as the so-called real thing. So I had my first appointment and I'm not exactly sure how it went. I must have pressed the wrong key or something because my therapist, she only spoke Spanish, but she had a five-star rating. So I kind of toughed it out. Best I can tell, she told me not to make fun of myself so much At least I think so. There was a bunch of no bueno and muy malo whenever I was talking. So I've decided to create a character, Esteban, that's definitely not me. But this character, Esteban, in his 20s, he embodied the most kind of superficial version of what my simple mind, I mean, Esteban's simple mind, thought of as Greece. Like, for the ancient, the philosophical, he had stacks of books, Aristotle, Plato, proudly displayed, completely unread. Simultaneously and just as pathetically, Esteban thought to be a man of action, to be free and lively, he thought that was to drink three of whatever fruity cocktails were on special at the bar that day. I'm going to guess the two main characters in this book do a better, fuller job of representing these dualities. I don't know. Esteban didn't actually finish reading the book. Man, um, Esteban sounds like um, like a sad, pathetic individual, doesn't he? I mean, he sounds like uh, the kind of person who who watches The Sopranos because it makes him feel tough. Yet at the same time, he's um, too afraid to switch lanes or pet a dog. But anyway, yeah, I, I take your point. What we definitely do get in this novel are two diametrically opposed characters. So. Just to give a bit of context, what we're presented with in the story is a, is a world-inexperienced 36-year-old bookish writer who has um, retired from his intellectual pursuits in Europe to the coast of Crete. He's accompanied uh, by the older Zorba, whom he's just met in a small seaside town and hired for his, his help. Now, like I said, from the very beginning of the novel, it's clear that the two characters are very, very different from one another. The writer is reflective and passive and um, negatively withdrawn from life. And Zorba? Well, he's, he's instinctual, active, and positively saturated in life. The, the writer is all contemplation and intellect, and Zorba is all action, experience, and body. So, clearly they have very different orientations towards existence. That said, though, it is important to notice that they are both, in some sense, um, nihilists. That is, they're not optimists about life having any larger meaning or point. Or maybe another way of putting this is that 
they both recognize that life, or being itself, is fundamentally tragic. But here's the thing. What they don't share, though, are their reactions or their responses to this nihilism. Okay, so before I I discuss the different reactions that they do have, it might be instructive if I um, invoke something that Nietzsche talked about. Because actually, it turns out that um, Kazantzakis was was pretty influenced by him. As far as I understand, he, he even wrote his doctoral dissertation on him. Okay, so Nietzsche talked about something he called weak and strong pessimism. Now, by pessimism, he means that one has admitted or acknowledged the fact that being itself is, is cruel or, or contradictory or in constant flux. In other words, it's um, unintelligible and meaningless. Or as uh, Nietzsche puts it, the pessimist knows that existence is a ghastly absurdity. Okay, now, once aware that existence is like this, he thinks that people can react to it in two ways. They can react to it in a, in a weak way or a strong way. Okay, so what would be the weak way? Well, it would be to say no to life. It would be to deny your passions and your will and to retreat from life. And actually, Nietzsche associates this sort of weak reaction with the Buddhist view. He sees in Buddhism's goal of a, of a willless state of mind, its asceticism and its renunciation from the passionate life, as a weak and negative reaction to the, to the suffering and emptiness that is the human condition. Okay, well, what's the strong reaction? Well, it's to say yes to life and to accept it despite its absurdities. It's to fill the great void with passion and laughter and joy, rather than to slide into gloom and resignation. And what type of person is built for this sort of strong pessimism? Well, as Nietzsche himself says, it's someone who's not afraid of what's hard in life. It's someone with a plethora of health and a plenitude of being. Okay, well, so how is this related to what's going on in Zorba the Greek? Well, I think it's pretty clear that the writer in the story is meant to represent a kind of weak pessimism, and Zorba, a strong one. Okay, so let's take the the writer first. I mean, he's clearly become a pessimist of sorts. I mean, we know this first and foremost because earlier on in the story, he suffers from paralysis in his writing. And the reason for this is that he realizes that any order or beauty that one tries to impose on the world through writing is just, well, it's just illusory. It's just casting a veil over reality. In truth, reality is is ugly and meaningless. And the writer has come to acknowledge this. And he knows that he can't hide this through language. Now, what's the writer's response to this? Well, it's partly to turn to Buddhism and to mysticism and to the withdrawal of desire that's associated with this. But I think that's to be understood, as it is in Nietzsche, as a kind of renunciation. It's a kind of weak pessimism. Now, I'm not saying that the writer doesn't grow and become freer and learn to extricate himself from the need for salvation. I mean, he does all these things in part. But ultimately, 
Ultimately, he just can't seem to embrace life in the sort of full-throttled, impassioned way that Zorba does. Okay, well, this brings me to one of the truly memorable and, and vibrant creations in all of literature then. Alexis Zorba. So, Zorba too acknowledges the, the ultimate senselessness of things. But he reacts to it in an altogether different way. He approaches everything with pure passion and at the, at the highest pitch. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He's always engaged. He throws his body at life. His blood boils. He expresses his emotions. He laughs. He cries. He loves. And he hates. There's just no Buddhist peace of mind or, or Eastern ataraxia in him at all. He doesn't long for some final peace and salvation from the woes of life. He doesn't seek transcendence. His umbilical cord is still rooted deep in the earth. His soul is flesh. What's more, in Zorba, there's no measure. He's pure excess and pure dissonance. In fact, the word that he often uses is folly. And by folly, I think he means something like um, losing oneself to the larger life force or, or universal will, and then throwing caution to the wind, risking your life on the single throw of the dice. Somewhat like Dostoevsky's underground man, you know, with his insistence of um, unfettered choice worked up to a frenzy. Or somewhat like Nietzsche's daring tightrope walker in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Actually, you know, speaking of Nietzsche, really what Zorba is, is Nietzsche's Dionysus or Antichrist. I think that's ultimately what uh, Kazantzakis takes him to represent. Actually, to go further than this, I think that what Kazantzakis is partly doing in this novel is modeling his characters after the distinction that Nietzsche makes in his early book, The Birth of Tragedy. In there, he makes a distinction between a life of order and reason represented by the god Apollo and the life of dissonance and emotion represented by the god Dionysus. Well, so, so basically the writer and Zorba represent these two very different orientations towards life. The writer is Apollonian, and Zorba is Dionysian. Anyway, by, by associating Zorba with the Dionysian, what uh, Kazantzakis is giving us is someone who's a, a strong pessimist. I mean, that's essentially how Nietzsche understood Dionysus, as tragedy's hero. So, like Dionysus, Zorba celebrates life despite the tragedy that it is. Like Dionysus, he dances at the precipice of the abyss of being. He stays resiliently active in the face of universal senselessness and disorder, and accepts life as given, accepts it joyfully, ecstatically, and heroically. There's a famous quote out there that's been attributed to a laundry list of humans. Maybe it was said by David Byrne or Elvis Costello, Thelonious Monk, Frank Zappa, or Brian Eno. Hell, I'll even add to the list. Uh, maybe it was Thomas Edison or the Virgin Mary or Ben Affleck's tattoo artist. Whoever said it, the quote is, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. 
it's not quite the same thing we have here, but it does bring to mind, I don't know, the kind of joyless philosopher that solemnly intones that, that laughter and dance is the key to human happiness. Now go away, let me finish my deconstruction of Derrida's deconstruction of postmodern deconstructionism. So, please, Mr. Doctor Philosopher, tell us why dance and laughter is so important. Wow. Uh, deconstruction of deconstructionism. That sounds fun. But yeah, you, you mentioned that trope of the, uh, of the joyless philosopher. Now, that's kind of the writer in this story, right? In this sense, he's the opposite of Zorba, who's no real philosopher and spends most of his time laughing and dancing. Yeah, so, so laughter and dance are ubiquitous in this story. I mean, like I said, Zorba laughs all the time. Actually, he's, he's often described as having his whole face creased with laughter, and that when he laughs, he laughs from his inner depths. So that kind of raises the question, what's the role of laughter exactly? What's being suggested by it? Well, we often think of humor and laughter as a form of um, deference, right? Or as a form of uh, resignation. You know, we, we, we laugh to acquiesce in one way or another. But actually, I'm not sure that's always the case. I mean, the, uh, the French philosopher Bergson believed that laughter is kind of a weapon that we use to chastise social rigidities exposing the lies and the, and the hypocrisy in them. So for Bergson, what laughter ultimately is, is a form of um, mini-revolt. It's to say that you don't want to adapt all the way to society. And clearly, this is Zorba. I mean, to some extent, he lives in society. But by laughing, he stays independent from it and keeps his um, authenticity and self-respect. Actually, you know, in a way, this reminds me a bit of uh, what Nietzsche says about laughter. So, according to Nietzsche, learning to laugh, and to laugh at ourselves, is a way to question and overcome what he called the spirit of gravity. Now, what accounts for this spirit of gravity? Well, it's all those worn-out norms and, and morals that have been passed down to us by our ancestors, which we almost always internalize and, and take for granted. Now, what Nietzsche noticed, noticed more than, than most people, is that part of what makes our lives so heavy and melancholic is our uncritical attachments to just those norms that we have inherited from our, our family or from society or from religion. Well, this is how laughter can help us. By taking ourselves less seriously, we'll relate less rigidly to these conventions, and maybe even open up some space for our own unique creations and values. Again, that Zorba has pretty much freed himself from the spirit of gravity is obvious enough. And it's clearly humor and laughter that's helped him to do it. But anyway, to go back to this idea of laughter as a form of revolt, you know, it's not just Bergson who thought this. Freud, too, believed that um, humor was a form of rebellion. He thought it was the triumph of the ego and of the pleasure principle, asserting themselves in the face of difficult or challenging circumstances. In other words, laughter for him was essentially a form of liberation and an act of reform 
as what it amounted to was the refusal to give in to the forces of reality, even in the face of enormous odds. Actually, you know, it's really interesting. During the rise of Hitler, it was actually the the humorists and the comics that were among the first to call attention to, to, to warn other people about what was going wrong there. And we know this in part because between 1933 and 1945, 5,000 death sentences were allotted by the German courts for treason, a significant number of them for anti-Nazi humor. Now, if that's not a testament to humor's rebelliousness and revolutionary function, then I don't know what is. Okay, well, what about dance then? Especially Zorba and, and the writer's famous dance near the end of the story. Well, among other things, here dance too functions as a kind of defiance and an overcoming. I mean, as the narrator makes clear, for Zorba, dance serves as the expression of the relief from hope and of of servitude to false gods and idols. And so, what it really is then, is an act of embracing life, the earth, and the moment with one's senses attuned to the whole of the physical experience. And of course, this involves too the the overcoming of the weight of things, the nimble and agile movements of dance, to, to touch the ground lightly, is the overcoming of the heavy plod with which we walk through life. As the narrator says, if you've had some time to dance, then, well, Really, you've said all you've needed to say. And you've experienced that unshakable felicity that even death cannot undo. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode Beckett.